Welcome to the Citizens Youth Sermon Podcast. We are a ministry of Northwest Gospel Church and a community of students who are learning to live for Jesus. We meet every Wednesday at 7 p.m. To find out more, visit nwgospel.com slash citizens. Good evening, citizens. If you guys have not met me, my name is Michael Spencer. I'm one of the preaching interns this summer. Thank you, thank you. (laughs) Alrighty, so earlier I asked you guys a question. It was, what is your biggest fear? Uh, To begin this evening, I have another question. Is fear ever a good thing? Is it ever something that is helpful? Now, there are some obvious things that we should not fear. In fact, we are commanded in Scripture, Jesus says, be anxious for nothing. So there are certainly worries and anxieties and insecurities and doubts that we need to give to God. But is fear ever good? For me, I think about growing up as a child, and we get warnings from our parents. And sometimes these warnings come with a little bit of fear. And it starts all the way at the, the level of like when you're a little kid growing up and you're like pouring your cereal and you get a warning from your mom or your dad and they're like, hey, uh, be careful or else you're going to spill. And before you know it, you know, all the cereal is on the counter and on the ground and you've already made a mess and your parents are a little bit upset, but it's not a huge deal, right? But they warned you and you didn't really, didn't really work out, right? Now, there's another level of warning where there might be a significant level of fear because you might be getting yelled at because you're a little kid and you've gone too close to the road. And, you know, as a little kid, we're not necessarily aware of how dangerous that is. So when our our parent warns us and says, hey, stop, or hey, come back, and maybe there's a little bit of fear in that warning, but the fear is there because they care about you, because... They want to protect you, and they see the bigger picture. There's a difference between spilled cereal and a car going 40, 50 miles per hour that can take your life. And there's going to be a warning there, but it's not to scare you. It's to protect you. I have one story in particular. I was growing up. My family uh, goes to the beach every once in a while. And the beaches around here, if you've been to them, they're not really like the balmy beaches, right? You show up, you got your like puffer jacket, and you like stand and look at the water, and then you're like, you're tearing up because the wind's blowing in your face and you can't see anything. But I was a little kid and I was at the beach with my family, and I was kind of on this sandbar where it actually wasn't where the sand gradually goes into the water, it was like this, where I'm standing there on the edge. And then there's like two feet, two or three feet, and then the water. And I'm looking out at the ocean, and I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. And I felt movement, and then all of a sudden this huge hand was wrapped around my arm, and it picked me up and twung me around and put me back down somewhere else. And I was like, what just happened? I was absolutely terrified because it was my dad, and he had grabbed me and moved me, And I thought I was in trouble because he doesn't even playfully wrestle, and he certainly doesn't um, typically use that kind of action. So I was like, what did I do? Well, I realized after he put me down that the sand I was standing on had actually crumbled into the water. And I was not aware of this at all. But you see, my dad, he saw the bigger picture, and it terrified me, but it was for my own good. He was protecting me. And we're going to see... In Scripture tonight, in the same way God warns us 
And sometimes it can be scary, it can be fearful, but it is for our own good because he knows that sin leads to death. He sees the bigger picture. And the only way to be apart from that path of death is through his son, through faith in Jesus. So when he warns us, when God warns us, and even when he warns us harshly, it is for our good. Last week, Will taught in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 17. I'm going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to finish the chapter, verses 18 to 29. So you can open your Bibles there if you haven't. And Will taught us that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. That means that he starts the process of our faith, and then he's the one that completes it, and he's the one there every step of the way. He also taught us that just like warnings, discipline is out of God's love. And just a quick reminder of what that means, the greatest judgment from God is not to discipline us. The greatest judgment is actually when we are not disciplined by God. Because when we continue to say no to God and what he has for us, and when we deny conviction in our hearts, when we try to do things our own way and and go about life without guilt or shame for our sins, we separate ourselves from God. But God sees us on that path, and he knows that that leads to death. So when he warns us, when he knocks us on our butt and says, hey, I have something better for you, that's because he knows that the road we're on leads to death. So... God's warning and his discipline are both from a loving father. And even the conviction in our hearts is a great gift and grace that he gives to us to draw us back to him. Because if he just lets us go on sinning, that leads us away from our father. So it is a love to discipline us. It is a love to warn us. And we're going to see a great warning in our passage tonight. So again, if you haven't flipped to Hebrews chapter 12, open there with me. And you can uh, follow along with me as I read verses 18, going on to around 21. It says this, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. We'll stop there for now. I'm going to be honest, the first time I read this passage, I had absolutely no idea what it meant. And I was like, oh, this is going to be interesting because this is super wild. And uh, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews does this all the time. He draws from... Old Testament characters, Old Testament stories, and he uses the truth of those stories to to teach what he is teaching us. So it is vital that we understand the Old Testament context in order to understand this passage. So as I read again through these verses, I will give you the context for what's going on here. So again, verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched. So what is this talking about? Well, the context for this passage is... We're looking at the history of Israel, and Israel is God's chosen nation, and he brought them out of slavery, right? Slavery from Egypt, and then under the leadership of Moses, they go into the wilderness. So our story takes place when God brings them to Mount Sinai, and this is where God's going to give Moses the Ten Commandments, and this is also where God is going to come down from heaven, and the presence of God is going to meet with his people. So when it talks about the mountain that can be touched, this is 
This is Mount Sinai, the physical mountain. And continuing in verse 18, we have a blazing fire. So in Exodus 19 and 20, this is where we get the story that's being referenced here. So God comes down in like a flame, like a fireball. And when he hits the mountain, it is engulfed in smoke and flames. And this is where his presence is. And it says, and darkness and gloom and a tempest. This darkness and gloom, and it says again in Exodus 19 and 20, Moses goes up to meet God. Where? In darkness and gloom. Why? Well, if Moses sees God's face, he will die. Why? Because he is not holy and God is holy. So you see this, this, this picture of God's presence as he comes down. He consumes this entire mountain in smoke and fire and flame. Going on to verse 19. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. So we know from this passage there were, there were earthquakes happening. And there was this, this sound of a trumpet, and there was God's voice. So when Moses is up on the mountain, Israel is down below, kind of watching this spectacle. And they can hear God's voice, but they don't know what he's saying, and they are absolutely terrified. And it says that the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Even then, Israel knew they needed a mediator. They needed someone to stand between them and God. In fact, in Exodus chapter 19, and then in 20, the people say to Moses, they're like, Moses, you can speak to us, but don't let God speak to us because we will surely die. This is the words that they, they said. And I wonder sometimes like how casually we pray to God with no thought of this story where these people are, they don't even want to talk to them because they understand how unworthy they are. And that doesn't mean we should be afraid to pray to God, but certainly to understand that that he is so much greater than we are. And, and, and just that we bring that to him, that, that understanding of, of our disconnect and how great it is that we can even talk to him. See, we're, we're met with a conflict right away. The conflict is this. Sinful man cannot be in the presence of a holy God. We see this with the people and, and as they're trying to, to look upon God's presence on the mountain. It goes on to say this in verse 20, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. This was another command given to them. As they're looking at the mountain, there's a border around the mountain. And if they go past it, it was commanded that if it was a beast, if it was an animal that went past, or if it was one of the Israelites, that they would die. And this seems so unlike the the God we, we talk about today but is the same God. He does not change. And how did Moses respond to this? Moses is the mediator here. What does he do? In verse 21, it says this, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight, the sight of God's presence. So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Even Moses, the mediator, the one talking to God, is absolutely terrified because, again, he knows that he is unworthy and he sees how big his God is. Now, God could talk to Moses and Moses could then talk to his people. He did fulfill the role of mediator, but Moses could not make Israel holy. Why? Because Moses was not holy. 
So then the question we have to ask ourselves, and the question I hope to answer throughout the rest of this message is, how do we have relationship with a holy God? Well, we're going to continue into verses 22 and 24, and we're going to see that the unapproachable God paves a way through his Son. The first point, these first messages, uh, verses 18 to 21, was that man faces an unapproachable God. But now we're going to see that the unapproachable God paves a way through his Son. So follow along with me, starting in verse 22. Uh, Actually, looking back at 18, just know that we're not coming to this mountain. We're not coming to this physical mountain. Go down to verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Okay, so we have not come to this mountain. We have not come to this burning mountain, but we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So Mount Zion is a physical place in Jerusalem. But commentators would agree that we are not talking about the physical Zion or the physical Jerusalem. We are talking about the heavenly Jerusalem. This is God's kingdom. This is God's presence. And there's a beautiful picture here that in God's presence we can now come to him. And what else are we coming to? And to innumerable angels in festal gathering. In God's presence there's this beautiful celebration and an uncountable number of angels all around In verse 23, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So this is is talking about as we are approaching God's presence. Uh, We have the assembly of the firstborn in verse 23. Well, the firstborn is Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 says he is the firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn from the dead. Colossians 1 verses 19 to 20 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Christ is the first of many to be given new life. When he sacrificed himself, when he died on the cross, he then rose again and was given a resurrection body, an incorruptible body, a sinless body. And he was sinless before. We are not. We are sinful now. But we too, when we die, if we have faith in Christ, when we rise, again, we will rise with him and be given that same incorruptible body. And we will share in that resurrection. He is the first to do that. We follow in his footsteps through the path that he paved for us. And this is a great this is a great gift. So the assembly of the firstborn, the assembly of Jesus, this is the body of believers. Everyone who has faith in Jesus. This is the church. And it goes on to say, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now hopefully you guys are enrolled in summer camp. And what does that mean? That means you get to go to summer camp, right? That means you get to participate in the games and the worship, and you get to hear the word preached there. A lot of you guys, I'm sure all of you, are going to be enrolled in school 
And I know that's probably not exciting to talk about right now. But when you get back to school, when you're enrolled in school, you get to go to school. And you get to be with your classmates. And you get to take those classes. You get to learn. The body of believers, all of us who have faith in Jesus, are enrolled in heaven. What does that mean? We get to go to heaven and be a part of this kingdom. We get to be in God's presence with this celebration of angels. Among all the other believers, we are guaranteed that if we have faith in Jesus. What else? Continuing in verse 23. And to God, the judge of all. We do come to God as we approach his presence. And he is, he is the judge of all. This should be a great comfort, but also a little bit startling to know that he is a perfect judge. He is a just judge. He does demand righteousness. We have seen this in this passage. He is holy. He is perfect. He's going to make holy and perfect decisions. He sees all that we do. He sees all that we think. But know that he is a God of love. And who else is here in this presence of God? And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is the Old Testament saints. These are those who had faith in God in the Old Testament. And we see there's the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So when we talk about Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith, we can look forward to the day when we see him face to face. We are made perfect. And Will was talking about this race that we are living, that we are enduring. One day, we can look forward to that, that hope when, when we make it to the end. We are guaranteed that salvation and that we will be made perfect. This is a, a great encouragement, something we can all look forward to. And then verse 24, what else are we coming to? We're not coming to this mountain, this physical mountain that's on fire, wrapped in smoke. What are we coming to? We're coming to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We're coming to Jesus. He's the mediator who is better than Moses. I'm sure we've seen this throughout our study in Hebrews. He is fully God, fully man. And he did live the perfect life, the holy life, the life that we have all failed to live. We are all saved by faith in him. And it's because of him that we can approach a holy God. It's because of him that God the judge can see us and see us as righteous. How does this work? Well, Jesus was not just a kind of good guy. He was not just a nice person. He was not just a friendly person. He was truly perfect. He lived out God's law completely. He fulfilled the law. And when he died for our sins, when he died on the cross, he took our sin and he put it on himself so that God, as the judge, could punish Jesus for our sin. And he took his perfection and he gave it to us so that when God sees us, when he looks at us, he sees Christ's perfection. He sees Christ's holiness. So he took our sin and he gave us his perfection. The only way to be with a perfect and holy God is through a perfect and holy sacrifice. We go on to see this, finishing out verse 24. 
The sprinkled blood, and that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Cain and Abel, sons of Adam and Eve. They both offered sacrifices to God. Abel's sacrifice was approved. Cain's sacrifice was not. Cain gets jealous and he kills Abel. So I thought this was most likely Abel's blood that was spilled after he died. But actually, it is referencing Abel's sacrifice, the animal that he killed and gave to God. We see this, if you flip your Bibles over a page probably, in chapter 11, verse 4 of Hebrews. It says this, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. I want you to note that it does not say, and through his sacrifice, though he died, he still speaks. It doesn't say that. It says, through his faith. Verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. You're not saved by the sacrifices. You're saved by faith, even in the Old Testament. But if you have faith, with that comes obedience. If you know who your God is, you desire to live for him. And God did command at that time, sacrifices. So when Abel sacrifices to God, that didn't save him. But it showed that he was seeking to honor God with his life. But why, why the blood? Why the sacrifices? I know we've talked a lot about sacrifices in Hebrews, I'm sure throughout the weeks. Um, and hopefully you guys don't fall asleep, but I'm going to flip over to Leviticus chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. So try to, try to stay with me. I know Leviticus is one of the most exciting books in the whole Bible. Um, but this is actually pretty cool. So this is talking about the blood. Have you ever asked the question, why in the Old Testament, why in Israel could they not eat blood? Probably not having prime rib back then. Probably not going to have a medium rare burger or anything like that. Why did that change? What's the deal with the, the blood of these animals? Well, Leviticus chapter 17 verses 10 and 11 says this. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. Verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So why can we not eat blood back then? Because the blood of the animal represents the life, and that blood is required and reserved to make atonement, to pay for your sins, for the people's sins. Why? Well, Romans 6.23 says this, The wages of sin is death. When we sin, we have earned death. That is the just reward. So blood, life is required to make up for that. In the Old Testament, that meant the sacrificing of animals. But we see here in chapter 12 of Hebrews, that this sprinkled blood we're talking about in verse 24 speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Well, Abel did offer a sacrifice, but that did not atone for all sin. See, the issue with these sacrifices is that 
The priests are sinful. The issue with these sacrifices is that the animals being sacrificed are not holy. They don't disobey the law, but they certainly don't live according to God's law. They were not a holy sacrifice in that sense. The issue is that man keeps sinning, and the separation from God's holiness and man's sinfulness cannot be greater. The issue is there's no no pile of, of sheep's and lambs, and bulls that could make up for the sin of man. Why? Because we keep sinning. Why? Because the priest performing the sacrifice, he's also sinful. There's no ocean of these animals' blood that could make up for the sin that we continue to do day after day after day in our pride, in our arrogance, in our worries, in our insecurities, in our lustful thoughts. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing man can do to get to a holy God. So the priests are imperfect. But we've seen in Hebrews that Jesus is our priest and he is perfect. He was and is the perfect priest. He lived the life as the perfect man, the life we could not live. And he was the perfect sacrifice which allowed for sinful man to approach a sinless God. Because as man, he lived that perfect life, and in him we are given that perfect life. So that God the judge can see us as holy, as righteous. So this is where Jesus' blood is better than the blood of Abel because it pays for all sin, for all time, for all of us who have faith in him. I want to make a distinction and note that God's law did not fail. The old covenant did not fail, but it pointed to the need for Jesus. The fact that these sacrifices couldn't ultimately atone for sin simply lets us know that we need a better mediator. We need a better sacrifice, and that is in Jesus So the Old Testament did not fail. It points to the greater one who is to come, the ultimate solution. And in Jesus, we are offered this beautiful kingdom, this beautiful picture in verses 22 to 24. And the final point we're going to see, the son's offer, the offer of this kingdom through Jesus, it requires a response. Read along with me. Verses 25 to 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Verse 25 
do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So in the Old Testament, those who did not follow God's law, those who were apart from him, seen as the wicked, as they would say, they rejected God's offer. They are, they are punished. They do not escape the judgment. But it says, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven, if we reject the warning from Jesus. Why? Well, you see, in the Old Testament, they, they rejected God's law. But God, in his perfect justice, has decided and said that it will be a much greater judgment for those who reject the offer from his son. Verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now, he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This comes from Haggai, actually. And, and we see, first, he, he, uh, he shook the earth. When he came down to the mountain, Mount Sinai, there was an earthquake. Well, now, this passage is referring to when he comes again, when Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom on earth. That's what this is talking about. He's not just going to shake the earth. He's going to shake the heavens. And the things that have been made, the things of this world, the kingdoms of man, the rulers of man, all that we have established, those things will be removed. Those things will be shaken. And the only thing that will not be shaken is Jesus' kingdom that he is offering us. The kingdom that is offered through the Son. So we are offered this kingdom and it commands, demands a response. What is that response? Well, verse 28 says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God, it's a consuming fire. So the first thing it says is to be grateful. Do we realize that this gift that we're being given is something that we do not deserve? But this word even more accurately means grace or graceful. Be graceful for receiving this kingdom. Hebrews 4.16 is going to put it this way. So what is the response to this kingdom, to this offer? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why are we given this, this offer, this kingdom? God's grace. And in his son, why are we showing this gratitude? Because we've been given an unshakable kingdom. I brought up the story this morning about the beach. I would ask you guys, what are you standing on? And where are you building your kingdom? Because you can build several kingdoms in this world. You can establish your kingdom on so many different foundations. 
whether that be your social status, and I can take this block and I can start building my kingdom in this world based on my social status, how people look at me, what do they think of me, how likable I am, how many friends I have, if people like this message that I'm delivering to you, or if you guys think it's funny, I can build my life on that. I can build my life on family. I can build my life on insecurities and, and hoping for a nice family of my own to start one day. And I can, and ho- I can hope for a secure job, a stable job. I can build my life on maybe there's different things that the world calls us to pursue, like what we want most in this life, whether it be a nice car, again, a nice job. Like There's so many things the world offers us. They offer us the best version of ourselves, which is somewhere inside of us, so we can seek to find that. But at the end of the day, anything we establish, any revenue we build up in this life, anything we are holding on to here, it is all going to be swept away when Jesus comes again. All of it, gone. And if you are in a kingdom of this world and not in Christ's kingdom, you will be swept away with it. That is the warning. God is standing back here, and through his son, he's saying, stop, come back. I have something better. If you stay out here, you will not survive. He wants you to turn around and run to him. So the warning, and even if it brings fear, is an encouragement because what he has offered is so much better than these kingdoms that will be swept away. Anything we have here in this life, if it's built on the sand and not founded in Christ, it will be gone. You see that, that Jesus alone is going to offer an unshakable kingdom that will never end. It's only offered in him. There's no other way. This is a great gift. No, it, it does not require our blood, even though we have earned death. Why? Because his blood has been given. It does not require our perfection. Why? Because Jesus lived the perfect life as man. And he gives that to us. And he is the one who perfects us in the end. It's not up to us to just be strong or man up. It's up to us to run to the throne of grace and bow down before him. To turn back away from our sins. And what else does this look like? Acceptable worship. If we flip back to Hebrews 12. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. This is the work of the Lord. This is all that we do. We are seeking to honor him. Everything in all aspects of life. We are submitting and surrendering them to God. And it says this, with reverence and awe. Know your God. He is great. He is holy. He is perfect. Know who he is. He is worthy of more than just one prayer or a 30-minute Bible study in the morning. He is worthy of our entire lives. And whether you believe in him or not, one day you will bow before him, whether you believe in him or not. Do we realize how great this gift is? Do we realize that we are so unworthy 
but that he's offered a way that sinful man can be with the holy, sinless God. He's created the path. And it's Jesus not only who starts it, he's the one who completes it, and he's the one there every step of the way to show us mercy and grace as we run to him. The passage ends like this in verse 29. It says, For our God is a consuming fire. I hope you guys know that God does not change. It wasn't verses 18 to to 21 is the old God, and then 22 to 29 is the new God. It's the same God, start to finish, beginning to end. He is still a consuming fire. So you have this idea of the fear of the Lord. I began by talking about a warning. Sometimes that comes with fear. This does not mean that we just sit there and are scared of God. No, he's made a way for us to approach him. We can pray to him. We can seek comfort in him. But a biblical fear of the Lord is knowing who your God is. Proverbs 9.10 puts it this way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 8.13 puts it this way. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. So the fear of the Lord is not to, to curl up in a ball and be like, God, don't hurt me. No, the fear of the Lord is to, to seek to know God because you understand that he is worthy of your whole life. So you want to devote your life to him. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Why? Because you know that evil leads to death. You know that the only way to him is through the Son. So you're going to hate what God hates, and you're going to love what he loves, because you know that what he has for you is what's best for you. So you're not going to go on sinning without a care in the world. When you are convicted, when you're being challenged, you're going to run to him. You're going to surrender your desires to him. And of course, this is a process. And we're not going to be perfect, but we can rest in the perfection of Jesus. But know that as we have faith in him, faith and obedience are going to go hand in hand. On the other side of the spectrum, disobedience and disbelief go hand in hand. I believe it's Hebrews chapter 3, verses 18 to 19. It says this, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? So this is, Who did God say would not make it to the kingdom? But to those who were disobedient. Verse 19, So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Disobedience and unbelief go hand in hand. Why? Because if you don't believe that God is who he says he is, why on earth would you do what he wants you to do? But if you do believe that God is who he says it is, as we sang earlier this evening, then you will run to him because you know that there is rest in him, that there is a kingdom offered through the Son, and that in him alone we have this life, this perfect gift of life, And that one day we can look forward to being made perfect and complete. So we see again, Jesus alone offers an unshakable kingdom that will never end. And I ask you guys this question one more time. Where are you standing? Are you trying to do it on your own? Or are you running to the Father who has offered a kingdom through his Son that cannot be shaken, and that will be here for all of eternity. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you are so holy. There is nothing that man can do, that we can do to get to you. And yet you did not leave us out to dry. You sent your son, fully God, fully man, who was perfect. And because of him, you as the judge can look at us and see his perfection in our lives. And in Jesus alone, we are offered this kingdom that when all the things of this world let us down, when all of our our plans and desires don't turn out the way we want them to, when we're not liked by everyone in the whole world, when we realize that these things that we thought would satisfy simply don't, we can rest assured that there is one thing of eternal value, one thing that will remain when all the things of this world fall apart. And that is the kingdom that is offered through the Son. Lord, for those of us who have received this kingdom, who are, who, are, who are believers in you, God, would you encourage us to continue to run to you day after day, not to be scared, but to rest in your goodness, that we would seek to honor you with our lives. And if there are those in the room who do not know you, would this be fearful? But would it not just be fearful? Would it bring about change? At the heart level, God, we know that only you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can truly change our hearts. But you are a God of mercy and grace. And when we run to you before your throne, you will not leave us there to dry. You will pick us up and you care for us. And you give us a kingdom that cannot be shaken, Lord. Would you be with us now as we move into a time of worship? Would you be glorified in this place? God, we love you. We ask this all in your name. Amen.